Well, we are in week two of a new sermon series on the book of Galatians. So students, welcome back to the big room. You were out last week. We're glad that you're back in here. Your parents will catch you up on what you missed last week. And at the same time, we're going to journey into uh, what Paul has to say today. Um, I'm reminded as I was getting prepared to preach uh, today that uh, I'm reminded of Peter's words. In one of his epistles, he talks about the difficulty of Paul's words. And it is a whole different ballgame to preach out of a letter from Paul than it is to preach from, say, the Gospel of John. Like, that's, like, easier. And yet, Paul is going to get straight to the heart of the matter. And yet, it doesn't excuse us just because it's difficult uh, from avoiding it in any way. Instead, we're going to press in wholly to what Paul has to say today. And let me just recap us. If you weren't here in this room last week, it's ultimately the book of Galatians, um, if we can recap some historical setting uh, behind the book, is that Paul has gone through modern-day Turkey, southern Turkey, and he has planted churches all throughout the region in Lystra, in Derby, and several other places. And this letter is a letter to those churches some mere months later, probably a year-ish, within a year or two, does he now write to this same book, to, this, to those same churches, this letter to correct them on their errant ways. That seems to us uh, a little intrusive because we don't like correction. And I would probably uh, guess to say like they probably didn't enjoy the correction either. But mere months later, there's something dangerous um, for in the, the, the church of Galatia and Paul then addresses them and addresses the danger that they are in. There is a distorted and different gospel that has emerged and not just emerged, but begun to take root. See, that's the danger for the churches in Galatia. And so you may ask yourself, well, what is that different or distorted gospel? It's really this. It's anything that adds to the sacrifice of Jesus and therefore erases the whole sacrifice of Jesus. For them, it was that they said basically this, like Paul told you about Jesus and we're so grateful that he did. But do you know that Jesus was also a Jew? And if you're going to follow Jesus and you probably should become a Jew like Jesus was. Don't you know he was circumcised? Don't you know he, he adhered to the food laws and there were festivals that he was, was a part of? And so you too, if you're going to really follow Jesus, you need to do X, Y, or Z. And for us, it's not so different. So the gospel is this road of grace. Salvation by grace through faith. On either side of the road is a ditch. On one side of the road is the ditch of licentiousness. Those that um, practice licentiousness or they live in license, they say this, like Jesus died for my sins, I'm forgiven. And so what really does, does holiness matter? That's licentiousness, that's one ditch. You wanna stay out of that ditch? The other ditch is legalism. And it's not just that, oh, I'm forgiven, and so really what does it matter? It's I'm forgiven, but you know what? That good news of Jesus is a little too good to be true. I need to add a little bit of good works to Jesus in order to make his sacrifice apply to me. And so for them, it was circumcision. It was certain parts of the law. So 
And they would basically say this, the Judaizers or the circumcision party would come through after Paul would plant churches. And this would happen in the church of Corinth as much as it was in the churches of Galatia. And they would come through and they basically say like, you know, hey, we really love Jesus. And also, we also love Moses. We don't want to abandon Moses. Do you want to abandon Moses? Of course not. They would never want to abandon their faith. And so if you want to really truly be a believer and we want to know who really the believers are, then you need to adopt these parts of the law of Moses. I want you to see something though in this book and particularly as a part of this uh, beginning of the book is that this is not an obvious uh, distortion of the gospel. This is a very subtle difference and at the same time, Jesus is, or Paul is going to tell us that in this subtle difference, you are not just distorting things. It's a whole different ballgame. You are abandoning him who called you if you fall into licentiousness, but particularly in this first part of Galatians of legalism. The threat was not obvious, it was muddied up with the truth, and it wasn't obvious, it was not an obvious error in the truth, but a twisting of the truth. I want you to hear this. Ever since the garden in Adam and Eve, there has never been a denial that God exists. There has never been a denial that God speaks. Instead, there has been a questioning of what did God really say? Isn't that what the enemy said to Eve? Did God really say you shouldn't eat that tree? He questions the authority of God and therefore creates doubt in us and arouses our flesh to do it on our own. See, it's not just like black versus white. It's all this gray and the in-between when we start to have to try and figure out what is it that God actually has done for us and what is it that everyone else says that he did or didn't do. I would say this. We're going to be tempted to think that Paul is splitting hairs here, but in Galatians, the gospel is not a splitting of hairs, nor in all of the Bible, but a matter of life and death. And that's what Paul starts us out in. If anyone would teach and continue in these things, let that person be condemned to eternal hell. Wow, all right. That is some strong language from our man Paul right here. From the beginning of the letter, he knows that it is a matter of eternal security and safety, and that is what is at stake here, because he would say this, taking away... We take away from the finished work of Jesus on the cross if we add anything to the work of Jesus. And that deserves eternal condemnation. It's a tough word for us to hear. But Paul ain't playing, y'all. And we shouldn't either with things like the gospel. And so for clarity's sake, let's start where Paul started. And I just want to unpack for us really these three really important words that Paul gives us in this short passage in Galatians 1. But the first thing is this, like if we add anything to the gospel, we abandon the gospel. And really, I'm not as accurate as I should be in that point. Because if we add anything to the gospel, we don't just abandon information or news or something. We abandon the God of the gospel, Jesus himself. That's what Paul would tell us, right? And so here's what I think is interesting about the book of Galatians, what draws me to it again and again, and perhaps why we're in it as a church, is that um, usually like there's this beautiful statement of gratitude for the church that Paul is writing to, like the church at Thessalonica or wherever it may be. Oh, I, I just, I praise my God in my prayers always when I think of you. I know you're faithful. I know you're X, Y, or Z, and I'm so grateful for you. And we don't see that in the book of Galatians. 
Like he just gets right down to the getting down, right? In verse 6, what's his first word? Is I am astonished at you. I am shocked. I am deeply disturbed that you would so quickly abandon him who called you. Let's read it again, right? I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you and the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. You see, Paul starts off with rebuke and reproof, not just of the teachers of this legalistic gospel, not that it is a gospel, but also those who would believe in this false gospel. Paul is astonished. He is thoroughly disturbed, not just because of their desertion, but because of how quickly months they went from rejoicing in the freedom they have that we are saved by grace through faith so that we might do good works, and they have flipped it. I was just talking this morning with someone at Starbucks, and he was struggling with the truth of the gospel, and he was struggling. He's like, man, I just have a hard time believing that Muslims and Buddhists and Jews and everybody else, that although they are doing the right things, that they are gonna go to hell, and some murder on death row that comes to Jesus in the last moment is gonna go to heaven. I'm like, well, I, I struggle with that too. And the reason why I struggle with that is because I'm the murderer. I'm the one who deserves to be sitting on death row. At least that's what Jesus would say. I'm the one who's deserved death. No, I haven't murdered anyone that I know of. And yet at the same time, Jesus says, if you've been angry with your brother in your heart or your sister in your heart, you are guilty of the same murder. And so I said, man, we get to heaven, we get to enjoy a relationship with God, not because we're good, or our intentions are right, or we're sincere. No, salvation is by grace through faith. And he's been in church for years. And he's dedicated to the scriptures. And we get this a little twisted here and again. And yet Paul, the gospel, God is calling us to reinstate this faith again and this trust in someone else again and again, not in our own goodness, not in what we can add to Jesus's work, but instead trusting in the finished work of Jesus on our behalf. How could you, you would abandon this so quickly? He says this, right? How could you so quickly desert this idea of desertion uh, it connotes the idea of exchanging an allegiance from one country to another. Or, in military terms, you have defected. You have taken off your colors of your country and you have become a traitor. And now you are fighting for the wrong team. So this isn't just about splitting hairs. This is about tearing off your uniform and therefore adopting the uniform of someone else. Taking off your robes which God gave you, and then go and then put on the robes of darkness which, which, from which you have been saved. There is a desertion here. There is an exchanging of allegiance, and there's a reality here. Why would they do this? Why would they turn away from grace? Why do you turn away from grace? Why do I turn away from grace? We turn away from grace because the law is something that we can easily follow. Like, do not murder. Got it. We can do that. And 
it's easy to understand those that have broken that law. Like there's a comfort and a security from laws in our society. It helps us bridle our sin and yet in a civic duty be able to understand who are the lawbreakers and who are those that are living in their freedom. We put the the lawbreakers, the murderers and everybody else in jail and for us, we haven't committed murder and so we're free. And so there's some some comfort and security in either obeying and even disobeying the law. There's something there that provides for us security, comfort. And yet God is calling us away from that kind of security and comfort and into a comfort and security that is found in being rescued by Christ, by Jesus's work on our behalf. So Paul's main message is this, like forgiveness of sins and therefore your righteousness comes through Jesus, not through the law. No one could be made right with God by observing the law. Instead, we are made right with God through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. And this was scandalous. This disturbed many a great city So if we turn over to the book of Acts, if you can, go to the book of Acts chapter 13. This is what happened when he was planting these churches in Galatia. This is the message that Paul was preaching to these churches in Galatia and their reaction. I want you to see this because this is the setting to which Paul is writing and saying, oh my goodness, why are you deserting Jesus, the one who called you? Look at what uh, Acts 13, 38 says, right? So he goes into this long history on Israel and how God has led Israel and how he has sent his son Jesus to not just die for sins, but also be raised from the dead. And then in verse 38 of Acts uh, chapter 13, he says, but let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. He's just kind of saying, look, the law of Moses will not free you. It only will enslave you. Go back down to verse 42. He continues. And as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told to them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews, look at this now, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. That is the ultimate purpose of the book of Galatians, urging them to continue in the grace of God. Not in the works of the believer, but in the work of Christ on behalf of of the believer. Move down, down to verse 48. No, I'm going to go to verse 44. Sorry. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city to gathered, gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. What would they be jealous of? They are offering a free gift of grace and the whole city is now gathering around to hear this new word. They were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, Jews, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. We keep moving down. Verse 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. 
Look at the strong emphasis on God's grace there. As many who were appointed to eternal life believed, and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. The whole region was starting to get this, but the Jews incited the devout women of a high standing and the leading men of the city and stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. What is going on? I mean, have you ever encountered such persecution when you start to tell people you can do nothing to earn God's acceptance? Why is that a thing that would create persecution against you? Because again, we like the certainty that comes and the comfort that comes with what we've been told, the comfort that comes with our, with, with our abilities. Isn't that what this is about? Isn't that why the cross is so offensive? Because it says to you, you're not good enough. Your good works will never be enough to find acceptance with God. Instead, God has come and he is the one that is good enough for you. And so if we would not try and build up righteousness of our own by doing good works, or if we want to do good works, they don't, we realize they don't add anything to our righteousness. Instead, it is the righteousness of God, the good works of Jesus on our behalf. That's why we asked Matt. That's why Brittany asked, do you believe that Jesus, born of a virgin Mary, lived a sinless life, died and raised again? It was the sinless life as much as it was the death that brought us salvation because he fulfilled the requirements of the law perfectly on our behalf. So no longer are our sins counted against us. No longer are our good works, those things that we think are really good, are counted against us. No, instead, Jesus looks at us, God the Father looks at us, and he sees our faith, and he sees the grace of God being poured out over us so that we may have that faith. And he is pleased with us, not by the works that we do, not by the good things that we do, and he's also not displeased with us by the evil things that we do. No, he is satisfied in us because we are found in Christ. That's a beautiful and beautiful good news. And yet we read it and we go, okay, yeah, I heard that before. We say that a lot. Yes, we do. But the forgiveness of sins is offensive to those who want to pay for their own righteousness by their own good behavior. We'll see how um, offensive it is in a few minutes when we start to unpack for us some false things that we have believed. But the Galatians were exchanging, right? They, they, we go back to the book of Galatians in Galatians 1, right? He's astonished. He's deeply disturbed that they would exchange their allegiance uh, from, the, from God who paid for their sin to something else that can't do anything for their sin. And then he says, you are, they are, they're coming in and they're distorting the gospel of Christ. They are twisting it into something it was never meant to do. So the gospel says this, that God has called you to himself by grace. You are deserting him who called you in the grace, verse six would say. The gospel says that he has called you by grace to himself and now live in that grace and freedom and be zealous for good works. Religion of any kind says do good works and over time, God's acceptance and affection and approval will be given to you. We hear that in our minds and we go, I got that. But in our lives, we don't. We so often find ourselves in one ditch or the other of licentiousness or legalism. 
But these Judaizers, they were using legalistic uh, terms, not as like a suggestion, hey, you should probably do this, but like, no, if you want to follow Jesus, you better get circumcised, obey the food laws, and a couple other things. That's how we know who really follows Jesus. This is a distortion of the gospel. It's not an outright offense. It's sneaky, and it holds with it the same lie from the get-go. Did God really say you're free? Did God really say there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? Or do we pick up some righteousness of our own through our own good works, through our own achievements, through our own being approved by others? We pick up some of that and we go, oh no, I, I feel good about my salvation because X, because of Y. No, God says you are completely free in Christ. And this can kind of sound far off, like it's only a Galatian problem, but it is a problem with us. Look at what, what Paul says in verse eight. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Look at what he's saying there. Because he repeats it in verse nine. And he says, look, if, even if I come back into the region of Galatia and I tell you, yes, Jesus is good, but you also need to add church attendance and prayer and giving and attend a Bible study. If I even come back and I tell you, put your trust in those things too, I should be accursed and condemned to hell. But even if an angel comes from heaven, if you don't want to believe me and my apostleship, even if an angel comes from heaven and tells you that Jesus' sacrifice was not enough for you, let that angel be sent to hell forever. Now there's some low-hanging fruit for us right here because in our culture, there are religions that believe a angel has revealed this new way to them. And so because we need to be clear about who those, those religions are, let me just put a point of reference down before you. We're not calling people out by name just to be like, ooh, I knew it. We're calling people out by name so we can pray for them. Maybe we're, maybe we're engaging them as they show up at your door because they're a little bit more devoted to their faith than maybe we are. I remember when I was, being, I was on a mission trip in Peru, I went all the way to the end of the road where there was one house like a half mile further than everybody else. And I was like, we got to this house and then there was one way out there and we kind of had this discussion like, do we go to that one? I mean, kind of a long way for just one house. We had this conversation, we were like, man, how far did Jesus come for us? We better go. So we went, we went down there and they were believers in Jesus. And we sat down with them and we ate fruit from their garden, which you're not supposed to do in a foreign land, but we did it anyways because we wanted to be kind to them and hospitable to them. And they said to us in a language that I couldn't understand, and they said to us, and they said, hey, we are so glad that you are Christians. We thought you were Mormons. And we were like, what do you mean? They go, Christians don't come out this far. They quit where you wanted to quit. The Mormons will come out and get us. But we're secure in our faith. So let me just say first, Mormons are one of those religions that, that believe that an angel came from heaven, the angel of Moroni came from heaven, revealed himself to Joseph Smith in the woods, and then gave him ultimately instructions to write out the Book of Mormon. Same thing with Muhammad. An angel, not just Moroni, which is not in the Bible, but instead Gabriel came to Muhammad, revealed himself in a way and said, man, Jesus is good, but I've got new law, new instructions for you, which became the Quran. Those are two main, mainline religions that truly believe that an angel came and gave them a different revelation. And what was that revelation? It wasn't that Jesus was bad and Muhammad was good. It wasn't that Jesus was bad and Joseph Smith knows the answers. It was that Jesus is insufficient. He came for you. The Bible is good. But there's also this new revelation. 
Jesus, the church of Jesus Christ and latter day saints, the latter days saints, it's an adding unto Christ. You see the billboards, right, of Moses and Abraham and Jesus and Muhammad. They're, 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 they're telling the story that's true. There's a truth there. We're all part of that same Abraham line. And yet, they're also somewhat deceiving us to think that it's just all one big story. And it continues on. Where Jesus left off, it continues on with Muhammad. Now, let me tell you, I'm not here to condemn them. I'm here to enlighten us so that we can go, okay, this is for real. That if Paul is saying that those gospels are not just insufficient, but they deserve eternal condemnation, then our neighbors that come and knock on the door, you better have room for them on your couch so that they can ask you whatever question that you could, they want to ask, as long as you get to ask them some questions. You better be able to open up your home and your heart to those that, that believe a different creed than you because their eternal life is on the line. And so those are easy things that we can see and go, okay, Mormonism and Muslims, they believe these things. Man, my, my heart breaks for them, but my heart breaks for us because it's not just them, it's us. In this book called The Unsaved Christian, some of you, if you've been around me for the last couple of months, I've been reading this and finished it, uh, I don't know, weeks ago. It's a guy by the name of Dean and Sarah. It's called The Unsaved Christian. It's called Reaching Cultural Christianity with the Gospel. If you want to know how to engage your neighbors, this is a great start. Because this is what Dean and Sarah would say in this, in this book. Not quotes, but just kind of random thoughts. Cultural Christianity is a religion that is practiced by more Americans than any other faith. It is a religion that, believer, that believes in God, but does not believe that their sin has done anything to separate them from God. Or cause them to need Jesus, the Jesus that they claim to believe in. Cultural Christianity admires Jesus, but doesn't really think he's needed except to take the wheel in a time of crisis. That Jesus is a type of imaginary friend with some magic powers for good luck and sentimentality. We heard that today, didn't we? In the baptism story of, of sentimentality and good luck and superstition. And in the end, cultural Christians stand on, didn't we do this? Instead of, didn't he do this? See, this is the same thing that Jesus talked about in Matthew 7, right? He knew that there would be people that would stand on their own good works before God and say, didn't, didn't we do all these things for you, Jesus? Matthew 7, 21. Let this wake us up, not just for our own selves, but for our neighbors. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. You guys know that? Not everyone who says that they're a Christian will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Well, what's the will of the Father? But to believe in the Son. That's the will of the Father, to believe in the Son. And so look, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not do all these things for you? Did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. But didn't we do these things for you, Jesus? Didn't we, didn't we, didn't, I haven't, have you ever cast out a demon? Anyone? If you have, I want to hang out with you. Like, I've never cast out a demon, and these guys are standing before Jesus and go, didn't we cast out demons in your name? That would be a pretty high work. Didn't we do all these mighty things in your name? And he's going, no, I never knew you. You did not do the will of my Father, 
which is believe in the finished sacrifice of the Son. I mean, didn't we say grace before dinner? Didn't we believe that prayer should be brought back into our schools? Didn't we sing God bless America at the Astros game and got a little teary-eyed? Didn't we give money to the church? Didn't we show up on Sunday? I mean, I was a part of the road crew, Jesus. I served in the nursery, y'all. Didn't we give money to the church? Didn't we show up? Didn't we own Bibles? Didn't we go to Bible study, Jesus? Didn't we know your word? Didn't we want America to return to its Christian roots? Didn't we vote that way, Jesus? Didn't we? Didn't we? And God is calling us to no longer put our trust in the didn't we's, but instead putting our trust in the didn't he's. Didn't he die for us? Didn't he give us righteousness? Didn't he bring us and adopt us into his family? Didn't he make a, a spot for us at his table? When we were running the other way, didn't he come after us by his Holy Spirit? Didn't he resurrect our hearts? Didn't he take out the heart of flesh? I can't take out a heart of, of, of stone. I can't do that. Didn't he put in a new heart? Didn't he then, Ezekiel would say, cause us to obey his commandments by the presence of his spirit. No longer didn't we, but didn't he. And so we go back to these two errors of licentiousness and legalism. And for the, those that struggle with licentiousness, didn't we take your forgiveness seriously? When we decided to kind of come in and out of a local church when we felt like it, when we decided to just like really lean into the forgiven statement, and we drop our kids off at school or at a church to, to babysit, when we treated your bride, the church, like a country club where we pay our membership dues in order to get fully funded and professionally run programs. Didn't we do that? Didn't we dress up for Easter and Christmas? But we didn't clothe ourselves in Christ in the everyday. Didn't Jesus' authority, and we, we, some, some of us may think that if we're, if we're headed in the licentious world, Jesus' authority is for those who are really extreme for their, in their faith. Like, man, that's good for you, but I, I, like giving up all that, ooh, I don't know. Jesus, for the licentious, turns a blind eye to sin and changes with the times on social issues like gay marriage. I said the words, you need to come and talk to me if you think you know what I think about that. Come and talk to me. Jesus just changes with the times on social issues. Jesus is here also for the licentious to make your dreams come true. You see this on TV. You are supposed to be happy, healthy, wealthy, and wise. And if you aren't, probably should give a little more. Probably should do a little more. Y'all think this is like something out there. This is in us as well. You see, in this in the licentious mind, God is a vending machine that we put in good works and God gives out what we ordered. And for the legalists, if we haven't hit you yet, you're coming. Didn't we take your call to holiness seriously? It's no longer about freedom for the licentious. It's about freedom and forgiveness. But for the legalists, it's about holiness. Didn't we take your holiness seriously, Lord? We, you, you found us in church every week and in every Bible study that we could find. We were at everything because if we missed, man, there was guilt, guilty, on, guilty consciousness in us for not doing our part. See, legalists demand to be recognized for their own righteousness. I did these things for their dedication, for their good deeds. And in turn, man, they have a tendency to condemn others for not being good at the same thing that they're good at. 
So they've created this scorecard where they're really good at X, Y, and Z, and then they look at you and go, you're terrible at X, Y, and Z. I don't know if you knew that. Uh, what about one, two, and three? Because you're really good at those two. And there's this self-condemning nature in them. There's a demand in them, right? To set up, to, to give, to pray, for the Bible study, for attendance, for social action. And they remember when they were baptized after their salvation prayer, when they were eight, and they stood on those works of righteousness as confidence that they are saved, regardless of what their life looks like now. They're driven by guilt and identity and identify themselves with the church rather than with Christ. Their religious activity gives them their identity, not Christ's activity on their behalf. This is one of the things that people asked us a lot when we were first starting our church. Why would you want to start a church where there's so many different churches? Look, there's a lot of good churches around here. I'm not here to con condemn and call anybody out. In all of Fort Bend County, there's a lot of really, really solid, Bible-believing churches but there's not nearly enough to keep up with the rapid growth that's coming into Fort Bend County. And so there may be churches here, but is the gospel taking root in all of us so that we might multiply and make disciples who want to follow Jesus? So what's our proper response, right? If licentiousness is on one side of the road and legalism is on the other side of the road, what is this road? It's liberty. It's freedom. See, neither legalism, is, which is a means of gaining righteousness in yourself, or licentiousness, the den denial that holiness means anything, will do. Instead, there is a better way of liberty. The life of liberty is where the spirit is, for where the spirit is, there is freedom. And those in liberty don't ask the questions about, didn't we do X, Y, or Z? Instead, they ask the questions like, well, didn't Jesus die for me? Didn't he secure me? Didn't he call me? Those that are rooted in liberty are dedicated to the local church because they remember again and again of Jesus' dedication to them. They remember how Jesus laid down his life for them and therefore they want to lay down their lives for the sake of others. They will forgive others because they remember how much they have been forgiven. They will inconvenience themselves because they remember how much Jesus inconvenienced himself for them. They remember that their preference is not the thing that would govern them because it wasn't the thing that governed Jesus. All right. So before panic breaks out, right? So the legalists in the room are being like, oh, okay, well, that's fun. And the licentious probably aren't here. Right? I mean, if they're, if they're forgiven and it's free, let's go. We've got a few more weeks of summer and we're out. So for, for just the legalism, like the legalists in the house. Me too. Paul too. Read Romans 7. How he struggled with obedience to the law. And then he goes into Romans 8.1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let us not be condemned, folks. See, that's, that's the trick, and that's, that's the trap, that we identify this thing in us, and then we want to live and, and, and swim in a sea of guilt. And Jesus came to remove that guilt. Jesus came to put that guilt, actually remove it, as far as from the east is to the west. And so, let us not fall into this temptation to be a Galatian in this way. 
Because even in our repentance, we can then start to go, man, I'm such a terrible person. Oh my gosh, this, that, and the other. No. Instead, we are still blood-bought. We are still sons and daughters of the king. We're still freed up and forgiven fully. That's the whole point of the gospel is that we won't get it right. But Jesus got it right for us. So two responses because I think both of these people are in this room. For those of you that are not Christians and you don't know it, that was me for a long time. It was me until my junior year at A&M. I thought I was a believer. I thought I was good. When people asked me, hey, you know, like if you were to stand before God um, today, if you were to die, why would he let you in? I go, because Jesus died on the cross for my sins. What else do you need to know? I have my cross on. Can you not see that I'm a Christian? It's a cultural Christian. I had no idea what it meant to actually follow Jesus. But it took some really solid people coming into my life and being like, dude, I love you, bro. But don't stand before God and say, didn't I? Didn't I do this? Didn't I go before uh, to church? And didn't I do my confession? And didn't I do X, Y, and Z? That ain't gonna work. Instead, Jesus' fully finished work on your behalf is all that it'll take. And over time, that broke me down to where God literally invaded my life, much like Matt's story where he's just sitting there playing the piano. I was not playing the piano. I was probably doing something way less cool. In fact, I was at breakaway and all of a sudden God invaded my space, showed me my sin and said, look at all this, it's filthy. He said, but I want you anyways. All right, okay, here comes the ugly cry. Here comes a lot of snot. Here comes a lot of tears. And those that have been walking with me were right next to me going, hey, dude, what just happened? What do you mean what just happened? I just got saved. Oh, cool. All right, we can rejoice now. And they've seen that. And some of you have been able to see that in your neighbors. Some of you have been able to see that in the people in this room. What a beautiful testimony. Let us come to him and trust in him. For the, not, for the Christians that believe they're Christians, for the unsaved Christian, maybe it's time to wake up. Maybe it's time to realize I depend on me because Jesus is there. Grace is calling you to realize that you are worse off than you would ever think. That standing on your own righteous deeds is worse than you might think because you may be better than your brother or your sister, but you are not better than Jesus. And he came, lived a fully obedient life on your behalf He's the only one that's perfect and it is time to lay it down, to get off the treadmill. Isn't it exhausting of always trying to do the right things, always trying to do the good works so that God will accept you and God will be happy with you? Isn't that exhausting? So get off. Jesus is there, ready to give you the rest that is found in him. He awaits your surrender and he cannot wait to carry your burdens because he carried them to the cross. He carried them up the hill of Calvary and he gave you forgiveness, if only we would believe. And for the Christians in the room, and that's many of us, may I suggest three things as we end. Your neighbors, your friends, your family, that you've convinced yourself they're probably gonna be okay. May I, may, I, may I invite you to go back to Matthew 7. Didn't we do X, Y, and Z? Plead with them. 
Would you, would you not live in denial anymore about where they stand, about where maybe you have stood, but instead kind of enter in with a new and refreshed perspective that this person is in dire straits without the gospel, and I'm in their life, and God, you've put me in their life, and what, what must I do? What can I do in this position? You're not responsible for their salvation. You are responsible for the truth that God's given you. Would you be salt and light to them? Would you engage with boldness and clarity? Would you do so by speaking the truth and doing so in love? Not in a condemnatory, not in a finger-pointing way, but listening to their story, understanding their wounds, and trying to figure out a way to interject the good news of Jesus. That he gave himself for our sins. He delivered us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and our Father. Let's pray. Father, would you help us understand these truths? Would you help us realize that we are far worse than we ever thought and yet more loved than we ever imagined? The gospel is God coming down to save sinners, people that were running from him or people that were trying to do really good for him. Would you help us believe? See, none of this happens without your Holy Spirit. And so Holy Spirit, would you comfort those that struggle with legalism? Would you remind them that they're not condemned? Would you remind them that they are not made righteous by their own good works? They're not made good by what they're good at. They're also not made bad by what they're bad at. Help us, Jesus. Help us be reminded of the truth. We are only made good because of what you have done for us. And for those that struggle with license and they just kind of take advantage of grace and they just, well, if I'm forgiven, man, I'm just going for it. Would you help them remember that grace came at a cost? The perfect blood of the lamb given for them that they were bought with a price, they are not their own, and they may live and love you wholly for all of eternity. Somewhere in here, we find ourselves in legalism, in licentiousness, perhaps dabbling with the sides of the road, hitting those, those yellow or those rumble strips on the side of the road and being like, oh, may the rumble strips of your Holy Spirit and your scripture Remind us of the road in the middle, of the, the road of liberty, the road of freedom. True freedom means we follow you. We believe in you. We find our trust in nothing else besides your son. So would you help us in these things as we respond in song and in singing? Help us rem be reminded of your goodness. In Christ's name we pray, amen.